back to Raise a Glass. My name is Eric Lintola. And I am Hunter Danson. This is a podcast about the stories and storytellers that shape us. Uh, Hunter, as we often start most episodes, uh, what's in your glass today? I have some chamomile tea sweetened with honey and bourbon. Uh, I was just going to do chamomile tea, and then I was thinking about having to talk about Ready Player One, and I was like, hmm gonna need the bourbon so that's almost like an inverse drink from what you had last week Mm -hmm. instead of the uh you know the honey being a major component i don't know and the bourbon being the major component you kind of switch things around yeah it's uh it's quite good it turned out better than i thought it would but what's in your glass in my glass today i was trying to put together like a 1980s themed drink (laughs) Uh, but I gave myself too little time and I didn't have any squirt or any of the, you know, unhealthy things. Um, so I have some, uh, amaretto and, um, from Chata and a, and a glass together. Uh, it is, it's amazing. It tastes like very nice, like almond ice cream. Really? All right. (sighs) Hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's what I'll be uh, raising, you know, so that's what I'll be consuming throughout this episode. I don't know. Um, I also I realized I don't think I shared one of the anything that I was uh, raising a glass or pouring out for one for and I don't know, maybe in the last couple of episodes, I think I missed missed one of them. And so I was thinking about this today and, and I, I would like to say that I'm going to raise a glass to um liquid hand soap um and pour one out for uh bar soap um specifically in that uh our at my office our liquid hand soap was uh went missing today in the in the bathroom and so mm. i could I, I searched many places and i could not find it so i put bar soap in the That's bathroom uh and i don't think it's gonna walk um but it's it's something you know I like in my you know for my own private use, but for in a public bathroom, not a fan. Mm, yeah, everyone putting their hands on it. it. The outside of the soap becomes like the dirtiest thing. Yeah. Hmm. So, anything a for deeper you? Metaphor there, but <laughs> uh, the scum of the earth. I I have I'm pouring one out for all of the dirty dishes in my sink because <laughs> I started, I did the dishwasher, ran the dishwasher earlier today and I forgot how long it takes to do the cycle. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it just finished a little while ago and I didn't feel like putting all the dishes away and cleaning them in the 15 minutes I had before yep. uh, the podcast. But I am raising a glass to Elizabeth Barrett Browning, whose poems I have been dipping into this week. Um, And there's one verse that I wanted to share. She was a poet writing from 1806 to 1861. Um, Okay. And I have a 
collection of poems called Sonnets from the Portuguese and Other Poems. And this verse is from a poem called The Cry of the Human. And it is, it is, I'll, I'll let the listener parse out how it's related. I think it is related uh, to what we're going to talk about today. But not to the dishes. Not to the dishes, no. Okay. <laughs> Maybe. You can make a case. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. The plague of gold strikes far and near, and deep and strong it enters. This purple chimar which we wear makes madder than the centaurs. Our thoughts grow blank, our words grow strange. We cheer the pale gold diggers. Each soul is worth so much on change and marked like sheep with figures. Be pitiful, O oh God. It's a it's a really good poem. You should look it up and read all the stanzas because it's beautiful or picture. But yeah, I, like I think I'd have to read it like five to ten times to really kind of soak in what what's being fully, kind of some of the deeper meanings in it. Yeah, that's what I've been doing. Oh, thanks for sharing that. That's yeah. I know one of the things on our on our our list at at some point to talk about are our our poets, yeah, um, and and our poem. So I'm excited for for that. Maybe we talk about her work. Uh, maybe you introduce me to some of it. And yeah, well, Hunter, I would love for us to dive into this uh, conversation about Ready Player One. I I think that uh, you know we talked about maybe talking about some other things as well, but. Uh, I think you just gave us the perfect segue into into our our topic for today. And yes, I know there are those that are thinking immediately, well, book or movie. Um, we are going to be starting by talking about the book, but we have also both rewatched or watched for the first time the movie in the uh, last week. Um, I might have just finished it for the second time about five, ten minutes ago. Um, <laughs> no, 20 minutes now. Uh, so, so we'll talk about that. Um, yeah, I know Hunter, you and I kind of have a, have a different type of approach to this movie as we have had to some of the others that we've talked about this book, sorry, this, this work, uh, ready player one, uh, in that, um, we might not be as, um, quick to raise a glass to this. Um, and I know we, we fall on slightly different parts of the same side of the spectrum uh, <laughs> in relation to this work. But before we, you know, what are your thoughts? How should we be approaching this book? How, how should we be approaching this conversation today? Uh, well, my first reaction is, I don't know if I should be approaching this book again. <laughs> uh, because I, I have a pretty strong, uh, reaction to ready player one and it is not a positive one i'm going to try and um talk more about what ready player one makes me think about um and mm -hmm. our society and publishing and 
prose and that kind of thing, because I think that's more productive discussion than trying to pick it apart. There's lots of quote unquote resources you can find that pick apart the book, but um, <laughs> I, I don't think like here's, I was thinking about what I was going to say. And I think I came up, what I settled on was Ernest Klein. Let's make an agreement. I won't waste your time and, and you're not going to waste any more of my time. And that's kind of my, after this podcast, my relationship with Ernest Klein is, uh, it's going to be cutting <laughs> off and that's fine. It's fine. And if you like, if you enjoyed it, you know, that's, I'm glad, I'm glad you enjoyed something, but I didn't. So, and, and don't worry for, for those, uh, uh who are, are thinking about this. I, I, I enjoyed many parts of this, of this work. And so I'll be quick to to come to defense of that, which I would argue <laughs> is defensible. Um, yeah. So yeah, but you'd also mentioned at at one point, Hunter, like the, our, the goal of our podcast is the stories and storytellers that shape us. Um, right. And so kind of exactly what you're just saying, right? We're not here. Our, the goal of our podcast isn't to say this is an eight out of ten, a four out of ten, or whatever. Um. It's a talk about the way it's shaped our lives, the way um, it's shaped our society, um, the things that it does that might have an impact at some point down the line or that brought together past pieces, right? There's a lot of ways that um, a work can can shape shape us, um, either individually or a larger family um, or, you know, larger community. And obviously, this book has shaped many people in the world. Um it's it's not too often that books get made into movies. Um, it might seem like it's more often than it really is, um, but like most most books don't get made into movies, and most books that are made into movies um, don't reach the same level of of fame that this one has. Yeah. So there is something there. There is something there. That's I I don't. Yeah, I I don't know exactly where we're going to go with this conversation. Um So I'll kind of let you uh be at the the helm because I okay. fear if if I try to lead us we'll get into some <laughs> less than pleasant territory. Uh <laughs> That's funny. Well, um, let me start then by sharing with you when I first was introduced to Ready Player One, um, and then maybe you can share when you were introduced to it. Um, okay. I just double checked. I I was I, um, I read this book as part of a a book club I was in, um, mm. last year. No, uh, October twenty fourth. Oh my goodness, that might have been two years ago now. Might have been longer, Hunter. It's it's. It, it was all during COVID, so it's oh okay. One of those that things in my mind, time. just all October October twenty fourth, twenty twenty. Um, that was the first time I'd read it and and discussed it. So I have already discussed this book once. Um, and when I first read it, I did an audiobook, um, an Audible, uh, which has Will Wheaton as the um the reader of it, um, and and I listen to it again this week with Will Wheaton again um, in the voice. I actually was introduced, I think, to the movie before I was introduced to the book. 
which is not uh, normally my my way of going about it. Um, but I will say this. Um, I had a probably two to three hour discussion about this book two, two, two years ago this month, and I don't remember any of it. Um, and it's not because the people I was having the discussion <laughs> with weren't awesome, because um, I remember many of the conversations we've had. Um, I think some of it had to do with the subject matter um, uh, of which we discussed. But what about you, Hunter? Were you introduced to the book first, the movie first? When did you first? Get connected uh, with this. The audiobook. Um my wife and I listened to the audiobook on our way back from Idaho. Um we we're moving back east. Uh so that was three or four years ago, I think. Um <laughs> it was around when Ready Player One was quite popular. Okay. And I was kind of excited to read it. You know, I, I I like video games. I basically grew up on Halo um, in high school. And I, I still enjoy video games, not as much as I did in high school, but um, I, I play them, I don't know, fairly regularly, I guess. I wouldn't I wouldn't call myself a gamer because that's who calls himself a gamer. But I I enjoy video games. I enjoy kind of like the history of video games and um some of the culture. Uh so I was kind of excited and and I was very disappointed um listening to the audiobook. I was also writing my first book when I was listening to it. So I think that had a big impact on how I interpreted Ready Player One. If I remember a previous conversation, um, wasn't your trip back also when you finished Don Quixote? Yes. So you finished Don Quixote and then you started Ready Player One. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember exactly. Um, it, I think we just like zoomed through ready player one. Cause I remembered, I, I can't remember if I finished Don Quixote before ready player one or not. Okay. But so in your mind, you were at least partially comparing what has become your favorite book to this book. Um, if for Maybe. nothing other than proximity of listening. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, I was also starting to think about publishing and you know, how I was going to go out, okay. go about publishing my book, what kinds of books are published and what kinds of books sell, that kind of thing. Okay. Well, I realize we've hit the point of the conversation where we've been talking about this book, but we haven't actually uh, given a summary of it, uh, which is something we have done with other spaces. So let me just kind of walk us through a basic summary from my own. I'm not reading this from anything. And so I'm sure I'll miss some some big things about That's Ready fine. Player One. Um, but Ready Player One is set in the near future um, in a world that um, Ernest Klein I think, thinks we're going towards. Um, most of the Earth has been destroyed. Um, there are major slums. There's overpopulation. There are wars. Uh, and the only space where people can be truly free is in something called the Oasis. Uh, which was created somewhere in the mid, I mean, there's like 
around 2020 or 2012, I think 2012 in the, the idea of the game. Yeah. Somewhere around there, I think. Yeah. And it's about a, a boy who lives in the stacks, um, which is imagine a vertical trailer park in Oklahoma city. Uh, His name, his real life name is Wade Watts. He's an orphan living with his aunt, who's kind of not the best. But his real name, who he really identifies as in this in this book, is Parzival, um, named after Parzival, who was a, a knight who found a sword or something with Arthurian legend. Uh, and so it follows yeah. his story. Holy um, yeah, okay. Um, it follows his story as what is called a gunter, which is a shortened version of egg hunter, um, as he is finishing up high school and then um, becoming a full-time gunter, trying to discover the Easter egg hidden in the Oasis by its founder, um, who has since passed away. Um, when he died, the founder of the Oasis um decided to give away the entirety of the oasis to whomever found his easter egg and so he hid uh keys in the game um and these gunters uh five years even still after this the the creator died are still trying to find them and so parzival ends up being the first one to successfully obtain the first key which shoots him from you know nothing to fame, um, from lame to fame, and throughout the rest of the story, we follow him as he interacts with um, the bad guys who are called the Sixers because uh, instead of being a a character in this game in the Oasis with a name, they're named after this, their six numbers in a row. Um, by a guy named Nolan something or other. Sorrento. Um, Nolan Sorrento. And uh, the Sucksaurs. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of things that happen in this. There's a lot. I mean, this is a pure 1980s. Um, what's a nice word for this? Um, I know not nice words, but. If you like the 1980s, you love the 1980s. Yes. Pure 1980s nostalgia trip. Um, so the more you know about the 80s, the more this is for you. Um, and and so these Gunters following the... What is the name of the creator of the Oasis? I just forgot his name. James Holiday. Yes, James Holiday. Um, James Holiday, like, loved the 80s. And so it starts with everything in the 80s. So so this 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 thing covers everything from dungeons and dragons to pac-man and uh, classic arcade games to music to movies um you know monty python um you name it from the 1980s it's probably anything Um, anything ernest klein basically everything ernest klein loves um he found a way to mention it in one way or another yes uh, and so that's that's kind of the the basics of it. Um, this guy Parzival ends up in the game. Um, he, him, and four other gunters become well known for finding the first couple keys. They become known as the High Five because there's five of them. 
and the Sixers are trying to kill them both in the game and in real life. They succeed to different degrees um, with some of the characters until in what is definitely, I mean, we're, we're a spoiler filled podcast, but it shouldn't be a spoiler <laughs> um, until they succeed. And Parzival gets the key, gets the egg. Um, and yeah. Um, and the girl uh, uh, and the girl, uh, the money and yeah, he gets everything at which point you think they're going to live happy ever after until you read ready player two. Oof. I, I'm Did still I miss amazed. Anything? No, no, I'm, I'm still amazed that you read ready player two. That's yeah. I did that today. Commitment. That was, uh, that was, I, Will Wheaton also reads that. So Will Wheaton has read both uh, the both Ready Player One and Ready Player Two, which is funny because at one point in Ready Player One, he's mentioned as being one of the co-presidents of the Oasis um, <laughs> because everybody loves him and he protects people's rights and you know, uh, the, the freedom yeah. and rights of, of people in the game. Um, yeah, that's that's what I'd say is, is probably a, pr- a pretty accurate depiction. I was trying not to give away too many of the details because there, there's because honestly, what I think is best about Ready Player One, and I think the reason why it's shaped the ways in which like it's positively shaped me, and I think the ways in which it's shaped our, our society is I think that um, Ernest Klein had really creative ideas um, that. Both, both within like the idea of the oasis, which is you know kind of where people are leading to, but then like at different points in this in this book, you enter into movies and like play the parts of different characters, or you'll enter into a two dimensional um, video game, but it will all of a sudden be three dimensional. Um, I think he had re- like these a few really really good ideas um, that. I I really enjoyed and I, I think are are really interesting to people. And he put it in a story that is a a come from behind, you know, cheer on the cheer on the nobody um until they beat beat the stick it to the man and beat the beat the bad guy, which is a very <laughs> typical story arc. Um and an overplayed story arc, I would argue. Hmm. And um Well, let, why don't you go? Why don't you go to that, Hunter? What, what are your, what are your, what are your responses? What does that make you, make you feel? What are, what are you thinking? <laughs> I was, I would say he had creative fantasies about what he would want a virtual reality world to be, because. It, He's not writing in a vacuum. I mean, I don't know if he read any of the previous books about virtual reality, of which there are many. Um, Notably, ones that I have read are Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson and Epic by Connor Kostick, both of which I recommend. Um, uh, Because I think they... Well... For one, they aren't just about video games and how great they are. Um, it, it's they are, are wrestling more with how humanity would interact with this kind of technology. Um, mm. And Ernest Klein does that at, sort of like as a sides. <laughs> um, 
And then he just goes back to Wade knowing everything about the 80s and being awesome and getting everything that he wants uh, and doing anything that he wants in this oasis. And um, I guess you could tell from, from that little bitter aside about Wade, the thing that ruins Ready Player One for me is Wade. AKA. He is not a likable character. Yeah. He is, he's... Usually when you read a book, and maybe that's a a good thing that he does. Like maybe maybe that is a way that uh Ready Player One kind of flips things. Like usually when I'm like reading a book, I'm like trying to identify with the main character and be like the main character. And I don't feel that at all towards Wade Watts. I don't have any desire to like, maybe towards the beginning, but like as the thing goes on, I'm like, I do not like this character. <laughs> I think rather than it being clever, I think it's more likely that Wade Watts is Ernest Klein. Um, mm. It's kind of a self-insert, like speaking from my limited experience trying to write, all of the characters that you come up with are a part of you. They Because that's really all you can draw from. You can draw from your experience with friends and family and celebrities and other people and psychology but in the end the only thing you can draw from when you're sitting there writing from your imagination is your own self and i sort of like if i have a, an extreme character who is i'm trying to make a lot different from me i tried to imagine what it would take for me to reach that state or to carry to an extreme, something that I have experienced myself. Um, like I've never been in front of a gun, uh, staring down a gun, but I have been in accidents and things and had some adrenaline and you can kind of carry that to an extreme to kind of get an idea of what it's like. But back to ready player one, I, the more as it just as it went on and on and on and on i just kept seeing the the sort of veil between wade and ernest klein got thinner and thinner mm. because the, there was one scene in particular that i actually that i enjoyed which was the one where he is playing joust against the lich oh so in, fun yeah. Um, it's I didn't early on, too. Yeah. I didn't reread the whole book for the podcast, but I, I reread that section and I read a few other sections. Um, and then I tapped out because I couldn't take it anymore. But um, <laughs> I really liked that section where the Lich is just like, you know, good game. And that's that's a, that's a great scene. Um, mm -hmm. One that they didn't recreate in the movie. But not at um, all, not at all. No. They brought up Joust once as a passing thing. Yeah. Um, but after that, I just kept getting more disappointed and annoyed um, by the pros, by Wade, uh, who has, he does, he learns zero lessons. And despite being <laughs> an underdog, who you have every reason to root for, you. I am hard pressed to find someone who roots for Wade. Um, 
<laughs> so I would say I would argue that if it's between Wade and Nolan and like the Sixers, everybody sure. roots for Wade. But if it's between sure. Wade and like yeah. any of the other of the high five, yeah. like I think I think the book should have been about Artemis or about H, mm. and they should. And I think it would have been a much better book. It would have been more enjoyable and more interesting. Artemis and H have so much more going on than Wade. And, but, but honestly, I'm not sure if Ernest Klein could write that story, but. So he couldn't, I don't have any belief that he could. Um, So Hunter, one of the things I'm hearing you say, which I, I appreciate is as we think about kind of storytellers that shape us is a way that when we are storytellers, like the types of story, like this, this can help us realize maybe a little bit more of like how, how, how thin that line is between you as a storyteller and the story you're telling whether you're writing it down or or you know putting it to music or you know saying it um yeah. and how you know our creative creativity even with amazing ideas and i i still argue i think that he had Ernest Klein has some really great ideas um and some of them have been played out in other Maybe ways not but the i haven't most seen original all of them. but yeah like I, I don't know. I keep coming back to like stepping into Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I think that is such a fun idea, and I would totally pay money to enter into a movie uh, to do that. Right. Um, yeah. And I had I haven't read that before. Um, even if it's out there, I haven't read it. Hmm. Um, one of the things that I think is very very limiting to the story, and the reason why. I, I had I, I mean I've I've read it I've gone through it twice um but the reason why I it's just I dislike this book is because the storytelling is terrible um <laughs> and and what why I say that is and Hunter we talk about this a lot um I don't know how often we've talked about it in this podcast. I am a very visual reader. When I read something, I want it to introduce me to and show me the world. And I want to visually put in what's happening. Um, right. I want to see a valley and be able to, in myself, as I'm reading this, like visualize all of the flowers and, and green and whatever else. I don't want to be told every single thing that is in the valley <laughs> that is limiting to my ability to to take part in the story and this book is not only full of lists of 1980s nostalgia but there's also it tells you absolutely everything that is going on so like instead of saying um wade watts and I'm working from memory, like, you know, and like stepped out of the back of his, his, his building in the stacks and, you know, s- you know, scurried down all the different means to get to the, to the, the floor, to the bottom, um, to go back into his hideout. It says, and Wade Watts stepped out of the window with his back to the stacks, moved along the edge piece by piece, found the corner. Went to the rope, grabbed the rope, put himself down, said hi to his neighbor, then walked over here. And, and it, it tells you absolutely everything. And, and it's like, 
it's a waste of words and it's it 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 limits the ability to to be able to visualize and i don't know if that's a, an editor challenge like i don't know if, if he had a different editor maybe that would be that would, that would be not part of the problem um but it's that it, it just it gets really old um like after especially you know halfway through the book and you're just still getting every single detail told to you and along with those details you have little gems like descending these metal platforms always reminded me of old video games like donkey kong or burger time and he he wastes (laughs) no opportunity and creates his own opportunities to insert any reference that he possibly can and yes there is a literal like it's at least five pages of a list of just the things that he has all of the movies that he has watched, all of the TV shows, Mm -hmm. all the video games that he's played. And his way into this is talking about how he's been doing research, quote unquote research for the the holiday, finding (laughs) holidays, Easter egg. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's a literal list and it's just, it's like, oh, I see you. I, I also watched this. I also read this thing. Like to the to the fans. Like if you if you came of age in the nineteen eighties, like you're gonna love this book. Because Yeah. The the thing though is like either you're gonna love it or you're gonna hate it because it's pandering to you. And I guess that's the thing that kind of gets me is when talking about the references, is I think there are a fair amount of people who read the references and say, oh, yes, references. These are all things that I love. Then therefore, I like this book and I enjoy it. And then there are Mm. people who say, oh, references, they must be trying to sell me something, (laughs) especially (laughs) in 2022. Uh, Yep. But this came out in 2011. One of the things that happens throughout this book is... Ernest Klein, um, and I think this is because Ernest Klein's voice is just straight through Wade Watts, um, like you were arguing earlier, mm. wants everybody to believe what he believes. And um, it, to, to me, there's no like, room for allegory. There's no room for metaphor or illustration or you know, ability to kind of like, think about what he's saying um, as a le- deeper levels, because he just comes out and says, um, my, my neighbor believed in God and like, I, yeah, I, I let it be good for her, for her. But like, I know for a fact that she's wrong and that we were all, you know, and he, he just, you know, goes on in this entire, he lists out all the reasons why, you know, anybody who believes anything different from what he believes is, absolutely incorrect um and and then he all they also i don't know if this struck you at all hunter um and maybe um i don't know i want to say this delicately and then maybe i can't do it too well but <laughs> there's one point um one of the uh, 
cool opportunities of creating your character, and, and we already know this in, in any video game we do nowadays where you're creating your own character, uh, is that you don't have to make your character in the Oasis look looks or sound or you know be the same gender or race or anything or even the same I don't know, type of being that you are. It doesn't have to be a humanoid. Um, and so, mm-hmm. and you don't know who somebody's real, what re- somebody's real identity is. And um, Wade's fit best friend throughout this entire thing, when he uh, finally yeah. meets him, uh, his name is H. Uh, he finds out that H is in fact uh, not a straight white man; it is a a lesbian black woman woman, yeah. and she tells him tells Wade his her story, and it's. It's it's two dimensional. It, it's I you know, my mom told me that I should always you know come utilize the benefit. I don't, I felt like Ernest Klein was reading what was being said in the media or written in a, a book, and he's like, oh okay, let me write that exact same line uh, in my book <laughs> um, for you know this this and and. and yeah. And to me, it was like, I, I'm sure. I mean, it could be the case that some people read that and like felt like seen, um, mm. and or heard from from what um, I, Ernest Klein was doing, and that's great. Um, I read that, and I just thought there were so many other ways in which the unveiling and the story behind the unveiling could be like made more complex and thus personal um and thus like less of a showboating oh wow look at how accepting wade watts is um and more about <laughs> h and who she is um because that's a, like every character that's introduced and like interacted with is is meant to show how cool wade watts is um yeah or how like or how he has changed, and I'm saying this with air quotes, when in reality you're like, I just don't think this guy has. Yeah, and another reason why I think uh, the book should have been out, H, because, you know, imagine if you're reading the whole book from H's perspective, and H never talks about her actual real life identity and then you find out you know three quarters into the book h's actual identity and you know that would be that would be really interesting and really worth exploring yeah again i don't think ernest klein is interested in in developing the kind of uh or put it putting the work in to make that happen in a book um at least not this one. You're going to have a blast if you ever decide to read Ready Player Two, which you've already said you haven't. Uh, no, I am not. He's... Klein spends a lot of work trying to be like, like retroactively, like uh, lift up H-, H and the fact that she is black and and lesbian. Oh. Like, he spends a lot of time. Like, they go to an entire planet that is just about Prince. <laughs> where neither like where Wade has absolutely no idea what's happening at any point 
because H is bringing him through the entire planet. And like, and then like going on, like and it's, 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 I don't know. It's, it's 20, 30 minutes of, of Will Wheaton reading. So it's, it's probably a long chapter and it's just, and then at another point they go onto a Lord Jeez. of the Rings based or um, Tolkien based planet. And the entire mo- di- really monologue that H has is about how there aren't any black people in any of Tolkien and how that's you know problematic. And, and yeah, totally it is. I mean, and that's actually one of the things we talked about in Rings of Power and, and how Rings of Power is changing and people's backlash to that. It's just absurd. Um, yeah. But it's just like, what are the easiest things for me to like, it's, I don't know. It, it to me, as I'm reading, I'm like, like, if you're going to broach these topics, like give me like, like a real complex, like thing happening instead of just like sp- spouting out whatever the current things are that people are saying now, like when the book is written. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it really smacks of tokenism. Uh, mm, especially weird. because Wade just goes back to calling H him, um, and like just goes back to thinking of H how he always thought of H, which is a white male. Um, it it has like zero impact on their relationship, which is I think a marker of like color blindness where you can say, oh, I'm not racist, I'm colorblind, I don't see color. But that's kind of ignoring, completely ignoring someone's race is, can can be a form of racism. Um, Mm -hmm. And Ernest Klein doesn't have any interest in exploring that. Um, No. Nope. So it is uh, his... To to quote Ernest Klein himself, if I were to give a review, like a one-sentence review of Ready Player One, I would say, Lame-O-Rama, beyond lame, Highlander too lame. <laughs> From the man himself. Oh my goodness. I want to give us a little bit of airtime as to the the positive aspects of this book. So I, I um, talked with both my dad, my dad and my sister who have read and enjoyed ready player one Mm. and both the book and the movie. And I asked them like, Hey, like I did that this week. I asked them like, Hey, what is it that, what did you like about this book? Like, what is it that sticks out to you from ready player one? And uh, obviously we talk about the stories and storytellers that shape us. And we haven't talked too much about the way it's shaped us personally. Um, but they both like, independently and they're in the same room. They, so they, then they agreed upon it said that one of the reasons they like it so much is because uh, a lot of it happens in the city of Columbus, which is oh. where my sister is born, where my, my <laughs> parents lived for a while. Where my brother was born. I wasn't born there. My parents, uh, my family moved uh, back to this area. Um, by that point, um, but they, like, that was like, still to me, like, even though I haven't ever lived in Columbus, I've visited a few times. Um, Columbus is part of our story and 
and mm-hmm. thus there's an aspect of of which that's uh that gives my family a personal connection to this story right um, and they also brought up um the the under underdog type story um and yeah. and I shared earlier that I think that's played out um but this this book does the basic story arc of this book does a good job of saying like hey like how can we like, celebrate like if you don't dive too deep into it and I don't know you know maybe 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 it's unfair <laughs> for us to read this book like we have been kind of talking about some of the other books and and, and uh, additional eh. things that we've been talking about but um the basic story arc is a, a hero's type journey um and he goes through low points and he goes through high yeah, points well, and he's alone it's not an interesting one i don't think but it it does the things you need to do to be a a hero's journey but does wade actually learn anything does wade gain new skills at the beginning of the movie book both uh when he meets artemis uh he shares that all he would do is is buy a a super fancy spaceship so he could get off the planet with his closest friends and a mansion so that and she's like no i would use it all for to help other people and by the end of the book he says that they're going to help some other people so that's what he says well you read ready player two does he actually help people He throws money at people. Hmm. Um, I I also read Ready Player Two today, and I just I I don't have anything positive really to say about it. Um, it was just it kept going. Um, it this so. I, feel I see like what you mean, though. Books... I see what I, I see what you're trying to say because, like, on the surface, the the general story arc is an underdog story. Uh, but I guess the thing, you know, anytime you write a book, you're publishing it, you're putting the words out there, and you can say, uh, "Oh, it's just a, it's just a fun book." that um, people can just use to pass the time. And that's that's fine. But personally, I'm interested in, a lot, in, in more than that. And I think the thing about it, trying to bring this back to how it has shaped us, the thing that Ready Player One taught me was that publishing is not about the quality of your writing or the quality of your story. Publishing, just publishing, selling books is about convincing an agent in a publishing house that you have written something that will sell. And Ready Player One sold. It got made into a movie directed oh, by yeah. Steven Spielberg. And I think that's that was a large part of my negative reaction to Ready Player One was listening to it, listening to such 
such aggressively, uh, epically mediocre prose. Um, that that's a uh, adverb that Ernest Klein uses quite a lot, but <laughs> and it's it just sold. It was a bestseller, and yeah, I mean. I don't begrudge him his success. I'm sure he's enjoying his life wherever he is in his DeLorean, but (laughs) you know, it, it, there is a small part of me that I I have to shut off quite often that, you know, thinks about the struggles that I've had in selling my book and um, just thinking about marketing and things and seeing how, from the outside, it seems that Ernest Klein sold his book very easily and made millions of dollars very easily. And um, by by filling a book with references and writing his fantasy of a of a world, and and sure, he does do some interesting things with virtual reality, and um, he does a lot of exposition about the technology, and which is genuinely interesting. Um, except for the part about uh, the sex robots and um, all that, that (laughs) the whole thing about masturbation was just like, okay. Um, That was another point where he was trying to make like, Hey, this is my thought. You should all believe this. If you believe anything different than me, you're wrong. Yeah. Like, like Einstein wouldn't have developed his theory of relativity if he uh, wasn't, yeah, that, that's good enough. That's yeah, good enough. it's like it's just it, it's like that made it into a published book that sold millions and that people laud. Uh, people people love Ready Player One, and I'm sure they love it not for that reason. I hope, but um, it's just it, it made me think more critically about what I wanted from writing and. Yeah. I, I don't and, and why I was writing and hmm. at the end of the day would it be nice to sell books and, and be famous I'm sure it would it would be really nice for my bank account um, and my family's bank account but uh, that's not why I'm writing and yeah. there was uh, two things and then I'll let you continue leading us past this uh, storm, stormy sea <laughs> of a conversation that we're in. It's aggressive but, uh, stormy sea. Yeah. Um, first thing that when I read it for the first time, I heard a quote by George R. Martin talking. I think it was an interview in an interview with Stephen King, and George was talk talking about why he started writing and why he kept writing. And he said, um, what it came down to was I asked myself, if no one read this, would I still write it? And the answer was yes. Mm. And the answer was yes. Brandon Sanderson says something like that too. And the answer was yes for me. And, um, the other thing is something I read last night, uh, in the diary of Virginia Woolf, 
um, who wrote to the lighthouse and the waves and Mrs. Dalloway um, doesn't, Ernest Klein doesn't really, his prose doesn't deserve to be mentioned in the same breath as Virginia Woolf's, but, um, <laughs> and I, I really, I hope that doesn't sound elitist because like, just please give her, give her a chance. Like she's, we'll talk about her a different time, but, um, on a different podcast, but she said how, when she sat down to write, when she did it without praise, uh, like if she had just recently published a book and, um, you know, she wasn't being praised, uh, in the reviews and stuff, it would, it would affect her for about 30 minutes and then she would just keep writing. It would, and it would be just as enjoyable as, and worthwhile as before. Um, and if, if, if you, at the end of the day, I think if, if I needed someone's praise and validation to write, then I think that I was probably choosing the wrong passion. Hmm. Thanks for sharing that, Andrew. Yeah. Yeah. I think of uh, Ted Lasso. Uh, one of his quotes from Ted Lasso is, uh, have um, the memory of a, a goldfish. <laughs> that's kind of what I was thinking when you said the 30 minutes. So it's, yeah. You forget it and keep going. Yeah. And, you know, let go of bitterness and envy. Uh, <clears throat> it's another thing I learned. Reading Virginia Woolf, um, a room, a room of one's own. Mm. Hunter, one of the things you uh, mentioned in your, uh, as you were just sharing, is that um, this book, you know, sold and Steven Spielberg made it into a movie, and um, yeah. I would love to talk about that movie. I. It's it's so interesting watching it uh, and rewatching it right after I'd read the book, because the last time I I watched it was before I'd read it, and there are almost the the characters are the same, the Oasis idea is the same, a couple of the magical objects are the same, the story arc is pretty similar and yet it, they're not same similar at all right it's not like an a and an a prime it's like an a and a b i i think i don't the one of the original percy jackson movies um when i watched it right after reading the book they made a decision to change um, the way that the sword comes out of this pen. So character Percy Jackson has a pen that can become a sword. And in the book, he uncaps the pen and it becomes a sword. Uh -huh. In the movie, he clicks the pen and it becomes a sword. Uh -huh. That's a change from what I call like A to A prime. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a difference. It's a difference that annoys me as a reader because I'm like, yo, you could have just done it the other way. 
In Ready Player One, the book, the first um, key is found through a Dungeons and Dragons simulation or like reality on a planet where Wade Watts is in school. In the movie, the first key is found in a drag race with all of these monsters like King Kong and other things trying to destroy the characters. There's no such thing in the mo- in the book of like of that. Um it's still a cool idea. Um mm-hmm. but from that point on the and I I think some of this had to do with the rights that they were able to get. Um like they got rights to the shining um instead of getting rights to Monty Python and the Search for the Holy Grail type thing. Well, like I just I I don't get it though. I read a little interview. I read some stuff, like some interviews and things about the movie. And I guess Steven Spielberg just sent some messages to people <laughs> asking if they could do stuff. Uh, and a lot of them said yes because he's Steven Spielberg. That was how they got The Shining, I guess. Um, and honestly, that was my favorite sequence was the shining part. Um, I, 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 but it was also the whole movie itself for me was kind of tainted by my uh, just just the kind of I'm just I'm really burnt out on reboots and um, rewrites and franchises that just keep continuing and that they keep milking and ready player one i think is an epitome of all of of the recycling of ips and yeah it's it's kind of fun and enjoyable to see people getting messed up in stanley kubrick's uh the Shining, which is a genuinely horrifying movie. Like it was so scary that Stephen King didn't like it. But um the the biggest what makes me pour one out when I watch Ready Player One is the Iron Giant. That's really the mm. biggest thing. Yeah, tell me why. Uh ha- have you seen the Iron Giant? Yes. So, a long time ago. Yeah, the the Iron Giant is a is a pretty old animated film about um a giant robot that crash lands on Earth and he has a dent in his head that gives him amnesia. So he doesn't remember exactly what his mission is or what his purpose is and he befriends this kid who um likes him a lot and and kind of teaches him about life and existing and throughout the course of the film the the iron giant the the iron giant is actually a super weapon sent by an alien race to wipe out humanity um but the iron giant because of his amnesia and his relationship with the boy discovers that he can change his stars and choose a new purpose. And one of the most famous lines from the movie and is 
I am not a gun, where he chooses not to fight, and he um, sacrifices himself to uh, blow up a nuke that is coming for the town where the boy lives. And when I saw the trailers for Ready Player One, and they showed the Iron Giant just blowing things up, that instantly killed any lingering kind of curiosity that I had to watch the movie because it's like they just did, they don't even care it's it was almost it was almost like Steven Spielberg saw this IP and was like oh ready player one I can I can use that to just fill this movie with references and it'll make lots of money and and look I, I don't I like E.T. I haven't watched a lot of Steven Spielberg movies, but this just felt it, it soured the whole experience for me. Um, the, the, the Iron Giant dies in a type of like beautifully heroic, sacrificial way, though. Did that not like redeem part of that story arc for you? No, no. OK, I, I got to be honest. I think the movie is fun. Um, I think it's a fun movie to watch. I don't think it's a deep movie to watch. I don't think it's a movie that should be watched after reading the book because you're you're just going to be disappointed mm. because like they just it's not just that small things are changed. There are major things that are changed for like very like unknown reasons. Um some of which are IPs based and some of them are just I just don't get. Um and like there's this whole idea of a resistance showing up for like 5 minutes that's just like made up. Um they one of the things that I think they did do a good job of though is they I think they captured the idea of the characters. Like um Wade is more likable in the movie than in the book. Um, but like I think they did a great job with H um and with Artemis and with mm-hmm. Shaito and uh sorry, Daito and and and, and uh and Sho. Um Shoto. Yeah. Um, even though they kind of changed their characters and they did other things around it. Um, but Hunter, um, while you were watching this movie, you did one of your favorite things. One of my favorite things that you do is you kind of live <laughs> tweeted it to me. Um, I think you should have a Twitter account just solely based off of you watching movies and, and tweeting them out. Cause it was, it's hilarious. I really appreciate it. Um, one of the pieces <laughs> of Artemis's character um that is that she has a a birthmark on her face Mm -hmm. um and that is like that is uh completely like that becomes her the entire definition of her character of which you know we learn that wade is amazing because he sees past her birthmark and thinks she's beautiful um which is whatever um it's like again again like okay sure but like you're not there's nothing complex or interesting or personal or like either it's still selfish it's about you (laughs) my favorite point of your messages is uh when you got to the point in the movie where art like you learned artifice like has a a a birthmark and you, you it comes a lot faster in the movie than in the book um and like she's got her hair hanging over that side of her face when you first see her and then the wind blows and she sees it and he sees it and uh, your response, what you messaged was, ah, yes, birthmark. 
debilitating. <laughs> I, if I had water in my mouth, I would have done a spit take when I read that. <laughs> it was so funny. And it's so like. <laughs> I just, you nailed it. You nailed it. Thank you. Thank you. I don't, I don't often nail it, but when I do. <laughs> Uh, where where are we going with this (laughs) so here's the thing i i I didn't know um because i've only listened to the audiobook version of this Hmm. i assumed that h was the letter h oh like that's uh but it's a e c h yeah why? Shrug. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't think he really says. Um, the, uh, the H. Like, I thought that was the reason. Like, it was H because he went by, like, she's, he, H started calling Parzival Z. And so I just assumed that because mm-hmm. H went by H, but I assumed it was a letter H, not the like attempted phonetic yeah. spelling of H. Yeah, I mean, I got, that's just his username. I mean, it's definitely within the realm of the weird names that people come up with online. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would definitely read that as Ake, spelled incorrectly, rather than H. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um, he has yeah. this sort of line about how uh, how he and H play this little game where they try and guess what his oh H's real name is. What H's real name is, and mm-hmm. I think it, that little section is a good example of of how. You're talking about how he tells you the story. Um, because rather than write some witty, somewhat interesting dialogue that that explains intrinsically this game, he explains the game in five sentences, uh, mm-hmm. more or less. And uh, it's just that that is the sort of thing that kind of irked me when I was reading it. It was like... I'm trying to learn how to actually write well, and and this got published and sold a lot of books. <laughs> and it's like it's just it's writing is really hard. Yes, uh, it is. It really is. Hard. It is really hard. And like Sorry. even something like this is a hard thing to write. So, sure, like it's not and, you know easy he, he to wrote write. a whole book. That's a that's an achievement. And he played the number of, of video games he probably played in order to write this book well. Like, you got to give it up for this guy. He spent a lot of time watching a lot of movies, playing a lot of video games in the last are, 30 years. There are um, multiple quotes by Ernest Klein where he says, Ah, uh, yes, I spend a lot of time, quote unquote, researching my books. He must be really good at video games. Like, he must be really good at some of those original video games because he goes into way too much detail about them. Or he just watches people play them. I don't know. I just I would like to think that he's 
kind of a Wade Watts. Like that's Wade Watts' superpower is that he's like really good at playing. He's really games. good at '80s games and before '80s games, and he's really good at knowing everything about the '80s. And yeah, and Holiday. It's. I wanted one other thing that's shaped me um, from from this, um, and it's not from the story itself, but it's one of the things the story talks about is some of these is old arcade games, and I I grew up playing um on at least somewhat regularly some of these old arcade games like in their original form one of my uncles um grew up in the 80s and has um pac-man galaga um joust um and a few other games all in his basement um and i grew up playing Mm. them um and like absolutely loved he's got donkey kong um like had so much fun and I haven't been back in a few years, but like when I go back, I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll talk with some people, but then I want to go in the basement and see how far I can get on Galaga. <laughs> I love Galaga. Uh, um, and like too. part of the reason I, it's so much fun. Um, part of the reason yeah. I really enjoyed the joust bit is because I could visualize it because I've played it. Right. And that was actually a really, I think, I think that was one of the better scenes and, and he still explains a lot of it, but like, I was able to visualize what was happening in that scene mm-hmm. and he didn't spend as much time saying, and then this happened, even though he does go into depth about when he loses all of his lives continually. Um, right. And, and that's also in the, I mean, in the game that's in, in the book, that's also where you first meet Artemis, um, mm-hmm. who's just a really interesting character and their first lines of dialogue towards each other are also really interesting. Um, I think, um, like I, I, uh, yeah, I was I, able to connect with this because of that. Those those games. Yeah, I. That was my favorite scene, um, and I'll, I said it before, and I'll say it again. I think the book should have been written by Artemis, um, because I'm trying to find it. And Artemis is the oh, first yes. one to find. <laughs> the the key the first, like. right and uh she wrote with an endearing intelligent voice and her entries were filled with self-deprecating humor and witty sardonic asides i would much rather read a book written by artemis <laughs> yeah um and yet i think we've talked about but, ernest klein wouldn't be the one to write it yeah, no. No, he wouldn't. I don't think. Uh, Hunter, I'm going to recommend that you don't read Ready Player 2. Way um, ahead of you. Uh, if anybody <laughs> has any desires to talk about it, feel free to, to reach out to me. I've now, I've now read it. Um, it's, it doesn't do anything new. Um, it, it, at the end of the movie, Ready Player One, there's a question where Parzival asks, holiday like what are you are you are you alive are you dead and then he kind of like winks and leaves and that's what ready player 2 is about it's it's about artificial intelligence uh, uh, and about becoming immortal great um and it's through ernest klein's views of this and i just 
his skill set he's not he's he he doesn't come across as a deep thinker to me um and as somebody that ponders things uh and 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 the book doesn't it's just very you know it's like you know eating 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 uh stale like toast stale toast even worse yeah. Oh no, I, we went very different ways. Uh, Sorry. You know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's just this. It's it's um, the things that made the first one unique. Um, mm-hmm. When carried on to the second one, stop making it unique. Right. It stops being a. Well, it's it's way past Ready Player One's cultural moment. I do think they'll make Ready Player Two into a movie, though. Based off how much Ready Player One sold, I think they're going to do it. Um, which would be Are interesting because the it? way they... no, yes, I will watch it. Um, I won't watch it in theaters. I'll watch it at some point in some other random day. I I did not pay to watch Ready Player One because I didn't want to give Ernest Klein even three dollars. <laughs> that's kind of sad now that i've said it um yeah it sounds really there, uh, there is one other happy. thing i wanted yeah there, there is one other thing i wanted to mention about how not ready player one itself but a review of ready player one um shaped me and this is a review by some random youtube channel slash website called hey poor player tv um and it's called the second opinion on ready player one and it is written by a guy who is far more entrenched in the geek and nerd culture that ready player one should appeal to um and his Mm -hmm. whole thesis is about how ready player one is the worst thing to have that has ever happened to nerd culture and I don't necessarily agree with all of his points and the kind of extreme tone that he takes for a lot of it, but I think it's definitely worth reading slash listening to slash watching um, because it is by someone who knows a lot about this culture and who maybe knows more about it than, than Ernest Klein does. And um he talks about how Ready Player One is an example of the worst kind of gatekeeping uh, because Wade puts people down and people cheer him on as he puts people down for not knowing about the 80s mm. and this culture. And he puts people... And, and the whole idea of people not making new art because they're obsessed with the eighties because they want to find a trillion dollars is incredibly depressing. <laughs> like, yeah. It, it, like if people just stop making, and that's, you know, that is kind of the thesis of ready player one, or, or that's one of the points in ready player one is that everyone is obsessed with the eighties now. And it is implied that no one is really making new stuff. And that's, that's really, really sad. Uh, and 
so that that I've I've come back to that re- review throughout the years as I've kind of mused on Ready Player One. It's it, it was very cathartic, and I think it's it's not just kind of a catharsis for disappointment. Um, it does have a have a pretty meaningful thesis. Um, yeah. Okay. Share that in the notes. Um, yeah. To check out. I uh, I was actually talking with a friend earlier this week who was sharing. He's listened to a few of our episodes, which I found encouraging. Uh, oh yeah, and it seems nice. like yeah, there, there might be a few. There might be a little bit of an audience for people. Cool to hear uh, our conversations with each other, um, even if they don't want to hear our thoughts. Sorry, I'm laughing too much. Uh, no, it's appropriate. I think I'm that hilarious all the time. So, well, you know, <laughs> I laugh internally at a lot of your jokes. So, consider this a kind of paying back the debt. Oh, thanks. <laughs> well, Hunter, I think we're we've hit that point in the episode uh where we're about to to sign off and I don't have a a witty uh uh end uh sound effect um I, I outside of just kind of thinking all the times that um all the weird sound effects that can happen when people uh transport to a place. Um maybe we should end <laughs> with the TARDIS sound in the background. Uh, or something else that's super 1980s DK's noise or yeah there's too many choices do you like the 80s I I wasn't alive uh I I enjoy many video game I mean I talk about the arcade games Mm -hmm. I recognize many of the um I know many of the references that were brought up in this um but I also enjoy modern things, and I mean, we. I, I like the early two thousands. I I like the twenty twenties, uh, even even in the midst of their major challenges, because uh, I still think there's some incredible art and music coming out. Yeah, and I'm so excited for some of the the, the movies that are going to be coming out soon too. You. Yeah. Uh. It's weird. I love um, certain things from the 80s. I really love Styx, uh, which was a band that was making a lot of music in the 80s. They're one of my first loves, uh, first music loves. Listening to Styx made me want to learn how to play guitar. And I don't really play guitar like Tommy Shaw does. Um, probably more bluesy, but... Um, just listening to, to Sticks and their tracks and the guitar solos made me want to pick it up and stick with it. Um, I do enjoy old video games. I, uh, I hacked a Wii and put a bunch of retro games on it. Um, and I've been kind of dabbling every once in a while in these old games. Uh, we had a Galaga cabinet at our ski mountain that we used to play a lot after uh, training um, and ski races and stuff so there, there are certain things but in general the kind of big hair big money attitude is something that kind of creates on me 
Yeah. Okay, I get that. <laughs> well, it's been a lot of fun talking about this with you. Uh, <laughs> to talk about, uh, we we had one of our uh, first adaptation conversations, um, and I'm excited to continue those uh, going forward as we talk about more books that have been made into movies and TV shows. Um, because I think that that really speaks to something's impact on the culture. If if it's been made into multiple different adaptations, um, often that comes with a an increased impact uh, as a story um, or as a storyteller. Yeah. On on the world. I agree. Well, until now, next time, Hunter. I gotta go. All right. I'll see ya. See ya. Thank you.